Who is the greatest Jesus? Yeah, we, we'd love to know. The disciples, they are interested in greatness and they are interested in glory, but Jesus tells them and he tells us to learn a childlike humility in our approach to him and we're going to see in our approach to sin and in our approach to one another. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller and glad you've joined us today as we begin a message called The King and the Children of the Kingdom. And Jonathan, I can imagine that some of us listen to what we just heard and we say childlike humility that 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 feels weak that sounds weak to me is that really something that i have to pursue well this is a place really where the values of the kingdom of god are upside down and backwards when compared to the values of this world and the values that we naturally sort of imbibe from our culture and our society you know, our world prioritizes a sort of type A personality that pushes for what it needs and, and gets what it wants to get. And Jesus commends to us a totally different outlook and a totally different approach. And he, he teaches us that actually our spiritual need is great. And we come to the kingdom not to give, but to receive. We come with empty hands. And once we're ready and willing to receive from Jesus Christ that which we need. We are, we are then ready for the kingdom. Well, we're going to continue to look at this today from the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 18 and the first 14 verses there as we begin the message, the king and the children of the kingdom. Here is Jonathan. As we've been watching and observing Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel, as we've observed him prepare for the cross teach his disciples, ascend the Mount of Transfiguration, descend the Mount again, and then minister to the needy. As we've observed all this, we've been struck together, I think, by the sheer gracious humility of Jesus Christ. He has modeled for us in these pages a profound humility, a humility when he might have every reason to be less than humble in his great majesty and in his power. But the, the greatness of this king and the greatness of this Lord, we've discovered, is shown in his humility. Now, knowing that and seeing that, it is just a little jarring then to hear the question of the disciples in the opening verse of chapter 18, chapter 18 and verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest, Jesus? Yeah, we, we'd love to know. We would, of course, just you know, point out to you at this time that we were early followers of yours. You know, we've been, we've been serving you, Jesus. We've taught and we've ministered in your name. When you draw up your list of honors, you might like to consider where we stand, Jesus. We look forward so much to your answer. In what follows, in our passage today, Jesus makes it strikingly and abundantly clear that the values of the kingdom are upside down and backwards when compared to the values and the expectation of the world at large. The disciples, they are interested in greatness and they are interested in glory, but Jesus tells them and he tells us to learn a childlike humility. He wants us to learn childlike humility in our approach to him, and we're going to see in our approach to sin and in our approach to one another. We're going to look at each of those in turn, but we begin with the first of them. Jesus wants us, he wants you and he wants me to learn childlike humility in our approach to him. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
I think it's safe to say that the first century AD was not the golden age of the child. It was not an era of history where children were placed at the center of attention, where children were the focus of huge investments in education and in entertainment and so on, where parents just wrapped family life all around the needs and the preferences of the child. You know, we need only visit briefly the local toy store and see the cost of toys available or to visit the electronics store and see the cost of children's entertainment and gaming systems, or, or visit the sports equipment store and see the cost of children's sporting gear. And we know, don't we, that children are today in a position of privilege, at least in some respects. But the first century AD was a, a period in time where children played a peripheral role in society and in family life until they came of age. Their needs and their opinions and their preferences were not centrally important. Children were certainly not honored. When the disciples asked Jesus about greatness and they receive the answer that greatness comes through being like a child, I think it is safe for us to assume that this answer was more or less the last thing that they might have been expecting. One of the wonderful characteristics of children is that they really don't hesitate to receive gifts from their parents. You know, they don't show up on Christmas morning offering to pay for their presents by installment over the coming months. They don't offer to uh, work to earn their supper or pay rent for their bedroom. They are just ready to receive, often well into their 20s and sometimes their 30s. <laughs> A little bit of nervous laughter from some parents there. <laughs> Jesus says, he says to us, the way into his kingdom is to adopt the outlook, the disposition of a child. Now, friends, I think we need to pause here and ask, why is this so? I mean, there's a certain charm to this outlook and to this approach. It's unconventional. It's countercultural. It's perhaps a little unexpected. But why is it like this when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to the Lord's own people? In a world where might is right, where we, we polish our resume and present to the world our very best selves, why is childlike humility so prized in the kingdom of heaven? To make sense of that, I think we need to pause and remember who it is that we are and where it is that we have come from. We need to remember, don't we, that we are a people who deserve no place in the kingdom of God. We are a people who have turned away from the Lord, who have decided that we know better than him. We are people who have embraced rebellion, who have rendered ourselves guilty before him, defiled by sin. The Bible tells us, and I think we know it full well, that sin leads to bondage, sin leads to slavery, and it ultimately leads to death. In sin, we are helpless to help ourselves. We are unable to fix, to rectify the problem that we have created for ourselves. We have, as it were, thrown ourselves down a very deep well with no means of climbing out again. There have been a few high-profile stories over recent years of miners, haven't there? Miners being stuck down deep mines with no means of escape and then of these daring rescue operations being mounted. And that was us, deep below the surface, no ability, no prospect to help ourselves. And Jesus Christ, he came down into the world to provide a rescue for a lost and an entirely hopeless people. The price of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, says the Bible. Rebellion against God, it is always a capital offense. And Jesus came to pay our penalty that we might be set free. He came to die in order that we might live. And with all that in mind, the simple reality is that if you and I were to waltz up to the gates of heaven and we were to present our credentials before the Lord, we were to show our resume, if we were to hand over our business card and, and then expect to, to be given the red carpet treatment, we'd be in for a terrible shock. 
I mentioned last time that I'd been watching with one of the children a program all about the White House. And, and within this interesting documentary, there's lots of historical footage of heads of state arriving at the main entrance in their limousine and being greeted by the president and the first lady and ushered into the house along a, a great red carpet. And, and we might imagine that that's the kind of entrance we deserve to the kingdom of heaven. It seems that's more or less what the disciples actually had in mind as they asked their question. But the truth is that in our sin, we are far more like beggars at the gate. We, we don't even deserve to be allowed in through the servant's door, through the basement. We deserve only actually to be turned away. And until we get that, until we understand that, we actually will not get in at all. The way into the kingdom is through recognizing that we have no right to be there. We don't deserve it. We could not earn it. We can't win it. The way in is to come to Jesus with empty hands and with a heart broken over sin and to ask him to save us, to ask him to cleanse us, to ask him to make us worthy. And of course, he does that. He's only too ready and he's only too willing. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I wonder, let me ask you, have you ever done that? Have you ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ with empty hands and with a broken heart, not seeking to present yourself as good enough, not presenting yourself as worthy of his consideration, but confessing before him that you are not good enough and you never will be good enough, crying out to him for rescue and crying out to him for salvation. That's the way into the kingdom. It's the way in and it's the way to continue in kingdom life too. It's the way to greatness within the kingdom, says Jesus. Notice it there, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So important for us always to remember where it is that we've come from. There's something just a little jarring about a person who meets success in life and then refuses to acknowledge their history their old friends maybe from the old neighborhood where they grew up. They, they keep a bit of a distance maybe from their family because they just don't want to be reminded of their humble origins. The story of Henry Ford intrigues me just a little. I mentioned him recently. He was a, a complex character in many ways as far as I can tell. But one thing that could certainly be said of Henry Ford was this. He remembered his roots. He really did. He, he grew from a relatively ordinary background to be the richest and the most famous industrialist in the world in his era. But, but all the while, he felt all the while most at home on the farm, doing manual work, driving the tractor. That's what he liked to do. He never really aspired to a different way of life, never particularly enjoyed the trappings of, of wealth. And, and that fact, it actually endeared him in a significant way to the American public. There is something jarring about a Christian who forgets where they've come from, who forgets that they were actually a beggar at the gates, that they, they came to Jesus with empty hands, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I, I cling, who forgets all that and becomes proud or entitled or self-congratulatory in some way. And that can happen. It, it, it does happen all too easily. And so let me ask you, if you've been a Christian for some time, are you still mindful of your roots? Do you remember where you came from? Do you remember who you were, what you were, when Jesus found you destitute outside the walls of the kingdom? Does the fact of your great debt and his great mercy keep you grounded and humble before him? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The King and the Children of the Kingdom part of our series in the presence of the king today looking at matthew chapter 18 and the first 14 verses there 
We're going to take a short time out. We'll get back to the message in just a little bit. So stay with us here on Encounter the Truth. Here at Encounter the Truth, we have a real heart to invest in equipping expository Bible teachers to serve the wider church faithfully and well. With that aim in mind, we have partnered with the Timothy Trust to facilitate training and equipping events for Bible teachers throughout the year. One event in particular I wanted to highlight is the Timothy Trust National Conference, which will take place May 15th through 17th in Ottawa, Ontario. I will be joined there by two tremendous Bible teachers, Alistair Begg and Ray Ortland, and we will be considering together how to preach the Word faithfully, in season and out of season. If you are a Bible teacher or know a Bible teacher who would benefit from this outstanding opportunity for equipping, please come to our website to find out more. It's EncounterTheTruth.org slash equipping. That's EncounterTheTruth.org slash equipping. And please join me, Jonathan Griffiths, along with Alistair Begg and Ray Ortland in Ottawa, May 15th through 17th. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The King and the Children of the King. If you happen to join us a little bit late, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. So grab a Bible and meet us there. Once again, here is Jonathan. He wants us to learn childlike humility first in our approach to him. Next, Jesus wants us to learn childlike humility in our approach to sin. One of the very lovely things we see here in the heart of Jesus is, is the degree to which the children of the kingdom are so very, very precious to him. It really comes through. So much so that he identifies with them in a very intimate way. Notice it there with me, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The way in which the children of the kingdom are treated, well, that, that matters a great deal to Jesus. He takes it personally. A welcome to the believer is a welcome to Christ himself. And there's, there's a whole sermon in that. We could stop here and spend a lot of time on that profound thought, but Jesus moves on and he shows us his protective spirit toward these children of faith. He speaks in verse six of how terrible it would be for anyone to trip up any one of his people, to disrupt their discipleship, to cause them to stumble or to sin. He acknowledges the reality that temptation will come, verse seven. Jesus is serious about the protection of his disciples, serious about the problem of sin, but where he takes all this is not a general warning to the world not to bother and disrupt the disciples. Now remember, he is speaking to the disciples, verse 1. He lands this now as a word of sober warning to the disciples, to believers, to us, to you and to me, a warning to be careful, humble, watchful when it comes to the matter of temptation in our own lives. Notice it with me, verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. When we bought our first house, we suddenly found ourselves with responsibility for a, a lawn and a garden, for a, a property to care for. And our, our first rude awakening came really um, with the management of weeds in the summertime. I don't know what it is about weeds around here, but I think our region is just the ideal environment, uh, perhaps unique in the world for their flourishing. The flowers don't do particularly well. The roses generally languish, but the weeds, they have a wonderful time. They, they, they abound and they flourish. And, and, and recognizing early on that I had a, a situation on my hands that threatened just to spin out of, the, out of control, I wanted to find the solution, the quick solution to the weeds. I certainly didn't want to find myself down on my hands and knees uh, actually doing weeding. 
There were too many weeds to deal with by hand. I wanted something more efficient, something ideally that kind of operated on an industrial scale. Anyway, one day I saw my neighbor across the road out with what looked like very much like a giant flame thrower. And he was, uh, he was walking around his property, I exaggerate not, incinerating the weeds. His place was always completely immaculate, so I figured he knew what he was doing. And what he was doing, it looked really fantastic. <laughs> really on every level. It looked effective. It looked easy. I thought it looked pretty manly. It looked fun. <laughs> and so, of course, I lost no time in buying one for myself. I think it was no small matter uh, of concern for the family when they saw me wandering around the yard carrying in one hand a large propane tank, because you needed to carry the tank with you, and the flamethrower in the, in the other hand. Now, I was sure that I, I had this. I, I, I knew about fire. I mean, who doesn't? <clears throat> and I had read at least the first page and a half of the instruction manual, and I had definitely got the gist of it, nothing to worry about. They, they were less convinced. The uh, flamethrower, I won't go into details, but it has now been retired from, uh, from service. <clears throat> Jesus wants me and he wants you to know that sin is dangerous. He wants us to have an appropriate humility, even a fearfulness before it. Now, it is possible for us to have a pretty arrogant attitude with respect to sin, an attitude that says basically, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm pretty wise to these things. I'm going to be fine. You know, just leave it to me. But Jesus says, no, no, you are in more danger than you realize, and you need to take far more steps of precaution than you think you need to take. He's realistic about the fact that you and I will be bombarded with temptation in this world, verse 7. This is a fallen and a corrupt world, and there is evil all around us, and there is evil within us. Jesus knows the temptations will come and must come, but he warns us not to be cavalier and arrogant in our attitude to sin. He urges us rather to be cautious and to be humble, not to pretend, you know, I've got this, not to imagine that we can handle the fire. He says to us more specifically to identify the danger zones in our lives, the areas and the situations where we are tempted to sin. He doesn't specify what those are. Any and every kind of sin is potentially in view here. You name it. Laziness, gluttony, greed, lust, jealousy, dishonesty, slander. We could go on. It's not pleasant, is it? But wherever we see that we are vulnerable to falling into sin, he says, take urgent action, action that might look embarrassing or foolish. Take urgent action to remove the source of danger. And to illustrate the point, he gives us this very shocking imagery in verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. I mean, can you imagine? Tear it out, throw it away. What's he saying? Take urgent action to remove the source of temptation. Take action that will make you look shocking or absurd if you need to. Do whatever it takes because the truth is you can't handle the temptation if you don't remove it from your life. There's a situation at work where you, you, you know you cannot trust yourself with the petty cash. You fear you might be tempted to dip into it when money is tight at home. Tell your boss, I do not want the responsibility. Embarrassing, but necessary. 
if gossip around the water cooler at work feels unavoidable and you know you get into conversation that is not right, you need to stop going there. Stay at your desk when others gather. If there's a context where you would be tempted toward ungodly behavior with another person, make sure you're not able to be alone with that person. If alcohol is a problem, make sure it's simply not within reach. Get it out of the house. If the smartphone is a source of temptation, smash it, throw it away, use the landline. Do what you need to do. Now, it is a humbling thing to make drastic changes in your way of life and your patterns of life in order to avoid temptation. It's a humbling thing because others might notice and it involves admitting that you cannot manage the temptation. It takes a childlike humility to say, this is too much for me, I am not managing. But in the end, it's, it's, it's worth looking weak. And it's worth looking foolish. It's worth looking maimed. It's worth being limited in some ways in your way of life because life and death are at stake. Notice the rationale that Jesus gives, middle of verse 8. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. It is, it is better for you, better, to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire. Sinless perfection is not something that you and I will attain in this life, this side of heaven. We will stumble. We will sin until the day we die. And Jesus is not saying here that anyone who is not perfectly sinless is going to end up in hell. But he is warning us that sin leads to death. And if we are saying yes to sin, yes to sin, yes to sin, and if we are getting entangled in sin, and if sin takes hold and takes over, if we're not repenting of sin regularly and fighting sin, we are actually, here's the thing, we are not on the road of discipleship. We are on the road to judgment and to hell. And the true believer, the child of God, the kingdom person, sees the danger of sin, sees that sin leads only to death, sees how easily it takes hold, and the kingdom person learns to run the other way, to remove every temptation, to exclude every possibility. The kingdom person learns not to play with the flamethrower. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message called The King and the Children of the Kingdom. It's part of our series in the presence of the King. Today we've been taking a look at Matthew chapter 18 and we have to pause the message here, but we'll continue on our next broadcast. I do hope you make it a point to tune in. If you ever miss a program, you can always come and listen online. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. The website is EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching on this station each day because of your generosity. We are listener-supported, and as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you Jonathan's new book. It's called God Alone, His Unique Attributes, and How Knowing Them Changes Us. So there's a question built into that title right there, Jonathan. How does knowing God's attributes change us? Well, knowing God as He has made Himself known in Scripture is really the greatest need of the human heart. We were made for relationship with God. We were made in His image, and we were made for His glory. And if we live life without reference to Him and without knowing Him, our lives are profoundly empty, and we are without direction. But of course, learning who God is and what He is like, learning who He is in Himself, 
that has profound effects for the practicalities of our lives, because if we shape our lives and the priorities of our lives around Him, then we will find that we are living for something beyond ourselves. We are living for His glory and His honor. We are living in trust of Him. We learn what true faith is because we have faith in the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, the God who is eternal, the God who is truly glorious. So if we are to live rightly in this world and if we are to live properly as disciples of Jesus Christ, as worshipers of God, we've, we've got to know who God is. And that's what this book is all about. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for supporting this ministry financially. You can give a gift right now by going to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-998-7884. That might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH, or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.